This is The Defrag, I'm Christopher Lawson. Space is becoming more commercial. Companies like Blue Origin, Axiom Space, Boeing, and of course, SpaceX are all working with NASA to develop technologies that will become key to the upcoming Artemis missions. But NASA has traditionally done a lot of this work internally. So why the focus on commercialization right now? Why outsource some of the most important components like landers, modules, and spacesuits to private enterprise who may have commercial ambitions that are different to the ambitions of a nation like the United States? Well, I think it's kind of a complex um, scenario where to, you know, step back for a second. We know that NASA's had a very successful history of accomplishing, you know, a diverse uh area of research and science. Um, And so this covers everything from human spaceflight to things like sending probes and uh, landers, you know, to Mars and then beyond to the outer solar system. I'm Dr. Rebecca Allen, and I am the lead for microgravity experimentation at Swinburne Space Technology and Industry Institute. And so this is a really, really large, um, you know, set of programs. And so it's very challenging as a single organization to oversee all of these different missions, you know, with the, the expectations on quality and safety, et cetera. And so we saw that the shuttle program, while extremely successful, really faced some challenges towards the end of its lifetime, and that it was just very expensive fuel-wise and upkeep-wise, you know, to maintain that. And so, unfortunately, the shuttle program had to be retired until very, and until very recently, we saw astronauts being ferried up into the space station uh, via the Soyuz uh, spacecraft. So what's incredible is that we're now in an era where private companies are doing the level of service that actually meets NASA standards. And so that means that we can now partake in more of these activities. And, you know, a very specific example will be SpaceX and their Dragon capsule now being able to deliver payloads and astronauts back to the space station. So I think, you know, what's really led to this, like you said, use of private, um, services is the fact that NASA still wants to reach, you know, these milestones and ambitions. And now we are looking at the Artemis, for, for example. And so in order to do that and do it well, that means that we have to look outside of one um, government, you know, government owned, so to speak, organization and look to privately owned corporations, which are really able to be a bit more agile. Is it paying off in terms of speed of development? Um, and, you know, I know SpaceX likes to develop quickly, but, you know, also if we think back to um, the original, you know, moon program, NASA developed incredibly quickly, you know, something that had never existed before. Um, so, you know, in, ter- in terms of that um, commercialization strategy, um, how's that impacting the speed of development? I think that's, a, again, a really good question, and I think you're absolutely right. It's about resources. So if NASA had the same amount of resources that SpaceX are putting into it, like you said, with that you know, problem, how are we going to actually launch you know, astronauts to space and send them to the moon? 
NASA was able to address that and catch up and then, you know, overtake uh, the Russians and landing on the moon first. And so it is, you know, feasible. And I think it is really about that resourcing and dedication. But again, if you look at NASA with, you know, space exploration, it's a multifaceted organization. So I think the fact that, you know, private companies are able to solely focus on these very specific niche areas that's where you know we see them able to maybe like you said not um, develop things any more quickly but just to have that specific focus where nasa isn't able to spread their focus into all of these different areas anymore i think what's what's sort of fascinating about this is you've got some fairly young companies that are involved in this. Uh, I mean, SpaceX is, what, about 20 20 years old. Now um, we've got other companies like Blue Origin that are working on on landers for the moon. Um, You know, but at at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a company like like Boeing, which has obviously been in aerospace and has, you know, a long history um, in that space. Um, What is it about these, these newer companies that are uh, is allowing them to you know take on these these sorts of enormous challenges um you know and and partner with nasa um given that they have a very young history in space well i'm really glad that you brought up boeing because i think there's a very topical example here you know with spacex being able to deliver you know with not only the falcon but then the dragon capsule and then we're still seeing you know boeing just getting off the ground their unmanned uh, Starliner test. And so, you know, I think it's a perfect example just because, you know, you're a a private corporation doesn't mean you're going to be able to, to meet that mark and one that's as tried and true as Boeing. And so I think, you know, it's a it's really a a great question, because why are companies, you know, like Blue Origins able to turn around the new Shepard and have successful launches? And I think it's kind of part building, you know, on on the shoulders of giants um, and, you know, the expertise and knowledge that you're able to bring in, you know, to your company. Uh, But at the same time, I think it is also, you know, resources and, you know, being driven uh, by a team leader, you know, by an organization leader that really has a specific very straightforward goals in mind. Um, and so I think, you know, on on SpaceX's uh, part, they've just done a terrific job of really outlining, you know, their goals and what they want to do. And they're not alone. Like, you know, for example, um, look at Rocket Lab. Um, they just, you know, were able to uh, catch, you know, uh, their, their engine, uh, their booster after a launch with a helicopter. Um, and so, you know, there's all of these, like you said, international, not just, you know, US, US-based companies that are doing this. Um, and to even look off, you know, um, on the ground, uh, Equatorial Launch Australia is hosting NASA and will be launching three NASA rockets from their facilities here in Australia. So I think it just shows that uh, you know smaller, newer companies, like you said, with that, with that expertise that's brought in, but also really knowing what challenges need to be solved ASAP. And so that's where you have that great partner alignment. And then you really have the drive and focus um, of the leadership 
and the resourcing. So it's, you know, it's, you can add in all of these ingredients, but there is definitely something that's like, I guess you'd say the special ingredient that we can't quite, you know, say, you know, well, why is Virgin Galactic a little bit different from SpaceX? And obviously they're different services, but still Virgin Galactic and the spaceship company have been around uh, much longer. What's so interesting about NASA's commercialization strategy is that it covers almost every aspect of space. It covers everything from developing rockets to capsules and spacecraft, landers and even space suits. While NASA has worked with other companies in the past, including back during the Apollo missions, it's never been to this level. Space has largely been dominated by two players, the US and Russia. And private companies were previously thought to not have the resources to fund space development. But that equation has changed dramatically. So given NASA is outsourcing so many aspects of the Artemis missions, what are the risks here in passing out so much of this development to external companies? One thing I will say um, is, is, you know, in particular, you know, with the Dragon capsule, again, to use an example, is that, that was designed with NASA astronauts. So it's, yes, it's a, a private company providing the, the product, but it is, again, building on the shoulders of, of that, of giants, of that knowledge, um, industry knowledge that's decades old. So you're bringing in the expert consultants. So from the start, you are mitigating that risk with that expertise, but then you're also bringing in, like you said, uh, for the suits, new technologies that might be used uh, from different industries. And so you're really bringing in that fresh perspective. And so I think that's where we really get to see some amazing innovation with the lower risk factor, because you don't have somebody who is completely, um, doesn't have that knowledge base of what would be required for this, you know, very um, intense environment um, in microgravity, um, higher radiation levels, but you, you also need that high mobility. That's a very different environment than sitting in the seat of an F1 car, certainly. But, you know, where can they, where can we take from each of those areas and improve the other one? I think, and I think that's what's really special about what we're seeing with ambitious projects like Artemis is it's saying, okay, what amazing industry and research do we have that we can apply now to space? And um, I think that's what's uh, giving a lot of, of small, uh, what we call SMEs, small medium enterprises, giving them this opportunity to really shine um, and say, wow, we've got this amazing you know, fabric. We've got this amazing technology that will uh, be useful, advanced manufacturing. Like I love Axiom Space, for example, the idea mm-hmm. that you know, modules um, and not just spacesuits, but just that whole, uh, I guess, life environment that astronauts will be part of um, is, is going to be really through this private company. Space has largely been dominated by the US and Russia. And while there is a lot of commercial activity in space, it's not just those countries which are seeing an appetite for space development. So coming up after the break, what can other countries learn from the US and NASA's commercialization plans? If 
If you're enjoying this episode of The Defrag and you want to support the work that we're doing, head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a Defrag member. You can get an ad-free version of the podcast, a sticker pack, a regular newsletter and discounts to our merch. Plus, there's a number of other perks depending on your membership level. Becoming a member is really the best way to support the show. It empowers us to produce independent journalism and gives you the best of the podcast without all the noise. So head on over to our website, thedefrag.com and become a member today. Space is becoming a lot more affordable and accessible. And while in the past, the US and Russia have largely controlled this industry, that equation is changing. Now, commercial companies seem to be leading the charge, and NASA is embracing it. But with this new activity in space, also comes the ambition of other nations. Countries like India, China, even Australia all want to have some kind of presence in space. So what can other nations learn from the approach that the US and NASA is taking to the commercialization of the space sector? Well, I think actually Australia is a, is really a great example because we have the Australian Space Agency, which is, you know, I'll say like a tenth, <laughs> maybe not even the size of NASA um, and very different priorities. OK, it's not, you know, there's space exploration. There, there aren't some of these big kind of science goals, exploration goals, but it's more of a regulatory body. And I think that's a really interesting approach because you're saying to industry, you know, go forth, you build the spaceport, you build the rockets, um, spacesuits, etc. And we'll help guide you along that path. But we're also not going to, you know, impede you. And so I think it's probably an extreme example of that. But I think saying, you know, like you just, we've kind of been discussing this whole time, is that there are some incredible um, industry and companies out there which really are capable of focusing on these specific tasks. And so by allowing them and supporting them to do it, then you, you're able to, I think, really kind of multiply um, those efforts and, and focus on many different areas of, and, and build your space industry maybe even more quickly than having one government-run organization where, dare I say it, you have to you know, worry about the bureaucratic red tape every five minutes. So I think it's a kind of a mix of having maybe a more small, um, less hands-on space agency, but then also you know, thinking about, well, what are some of the big ambitious goals? And that's where NASA's really, you know, shown itself we you know we could land a, a rover on mars blindfolded at this point you know but in order to keep up this pace of ambitions that's where you bring in the outside innovation mm. do, do you think that um you know with the commercial ambition that there is now in space is there a risk that we could we could ruin space 
I think I think you've again you you've nailed it with the saying like the the commercial ambition, and so it's fantastic because it's it's provided this amazing opportunity for NASA to again be able to launch you know astronauts from American soil etc. But at the same time, we have to think, you know, companies exist to make a profit. So we have to be careful, um, you, you know, now is the time thinking about, again, like you said, more countries are involved. It's not just one or two superpowers. It is countries and organizations and companies across the world. So now how does the world come together and say, well, you know, it's beneficial in this way, but at the same time, we need to have a global regulatory system. Also making news today, just days after the departure of Meta's Chief Operating Officer, Sheryl Sandberg, the company's head of engineering, David Mortensen will step down from his role. He'll be replaced by Santosh Jenadin, the current VP of Engineering. It's a time of significant change for Meta as they pursue their goals in the Metaverse, which has also seen the departure of another executive last week, the head of AI, Jerome Pazenti. Apple launched its PayLater service at WWDC on Monday, and now it's been revealed that the company will fund loans for the service itself, rather than relying on external firms. Apple PayLater, which is similar to competitors like Afterpay, allows customers to split purchases into four equal payments over six weeks, with zero interest. While Apple partners with Goldman Sachs to manage its Apple Card credit card, PayLater will be the first time that it's taking on financial responsibilities itself, such as lending and credit checks. Apple's move into the financial services signals a greater push to keep customers within Apple's ecosystem. And finally today, NASA's James Webb Telescope has sustained its first significant micrometeoroid impact just six months after it launched. Until now, the telescope's journey into deep space had gone very smoothly, but NASA says it isn't concerned. A micrometeoroid is a small fragment of an asteroid, and the James Webb Telescope had already been hit by at least four of them since it left Earth last December. But those impacts were much smaller and not unexpected. This latest impact from space debris occurred at the end of May, and caused some noticeable damage to one of the telescope's 18 primary mirror segments. NASA says they had to make some adjustments, but the telescope is still performing at a level that exceeds all their mission requirements. The Defrag is a production of Lawson Media. The show today was hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and produced by James Parkinson. If you're enjoying The Defrag, come and join our community on Discord. Just head to thedefrag.com and tap Join Our Discord. There's also a link in the episode show notes. That's it for today. We'll be back in your feed on Tuesday. <laughs>